Hello and welcome to the show. This is the J&J Podcast from J&J Editorial. My name is Michael Casp and I'm the Director of Business Development here at J&J. Today, I'm joined by two of my favorite people at J&J, Michelle English and Brittany Sweat. Uh, so tell us, Michelle, what do you do around here? Hey, everybody. So I'm Michelle. I'm the Director of Operations at J&J Editorial. Been here um, going on eight years. And what I do in my role, which is sort of ever evolving, right now I'm working a lot on developing our current staff as well as hiring sort of the next best and brightest at J&J. Great. Thanks, Michelle. Um, as I said, I'm also joined by Brittany Sweat. So, Brittany, what do you do here at J&J? Hi, everyone. Good to be here with you. Uh, I'm the Executive Director and Editorial Services Coordinator at J&J. So I help to uh, onboard new clients, ensure quality service is provided to clients at all time, and generally manage our editorial projects. Wonderful. Well, it is great to have you both here today. I know whenever I need some help with something, you are two of the first people I go to. So how about a little help unpacking 2017? I'm excited. Me too. So today we're going to talk about um, sort of the biggest disruptions we've seen in the scholarly industry. So our top five disruptions in scholarly publishing in the year of 2017 Let's get right into it. So the first thing that we sort of noticed in this year were we saw a lot of uh, consolidation and, and honestly vertical integration. Uh, so just significant moves by large publishers. Um, these were platform developments, partnerships, acquisitions, and we're wondering like, why are they doing this? It kind of has us scratching our heads. So the first one I think we want to talk about are some author services that we've noticed um, some uh, publishers. So, Brittany, um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we're really seeing is publishers getting more involved with the post-publication analytics in terms of being a service to authors. And so they can sort of rely less on ISI in terms of that all-important impact factor and give authors more information about how their articles are um the public's engaging with them. Um, a lot of publishers use Altmetric. That's a pretty standard at this point. But in 2017, we did see Elsevier um, purchase Plum Analytics that sort of serves as the same um, um, the same offering to give more back-end usage information to authors and sort of give publishers who are taking up these services um, a little bit of a comparative advantage over those that, that don't have those partnerships. Yeah, I think also in just in seeing that publishers are asking a little bit more of their authors. So, for example, one thing that I've seen is um, at the time of acceptance or shortly before acceptance of a manuscript, uh, publishers are asking authors to provide a tweet of, you know, what their manuscript is about so that they can take that and run with it and really kind of get to work on the article promotion, you know, right at the time of acceptance. You know, that's funny. I actually saw an article this morning about uh, where they did a study of journals who have Twitter accounts and how they compared that to um, the, the how, how well those articles do later on in, as far as being cited. And they found a pretty strong correlation towards Twitter activity by a journal and uh, later citations for their papers. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I see Twitter as being sort of like the more professional avenue, and I see some journals with Facebook pages too, and that doesn't seem to be as um, relevant. I don't know. Do you guys think so? 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think people have sort of decided in the industry, Facebook is for your personal life and Twitter mm -hmm. is more for your professional life. So I think it's the right avenue for, for publication promotion. So I have a journal that uses both. And what's interesting that I'm seeing is we have more engagement on Facebook just because more of that society's people are on Facebook. Not that many of them are on Twitter, mm -hmm. but they're all on Facebook. So we're getting more engagement on Facebook. But I, but I definitely agree for most journals that I see, Twitter is definitely the place to be. All right. So the sort of next thing I wanted to move us on to uh, is something, a pretty large move that I noticed this year, and I think a lot of people were talking about it, and that was the acquisition of the Sheridan Group by CJK. Uh, so uh, most people who are listening to this know who Sheridan is. You probably work with them um, or, or you know someone who does, but I'd never heard of CJK Group uh, before this, and that's because they're not really in scholarly publishing. Uh, they didn't do STM. It seemed like they did a lot of printing of magazines and books. And so it's a Minnesota-based uh, group led by CEO Chris Kurtzman. And uh, so they hold uh, printing companies in California, Ohio, Minnesota, um, Maryland, and now Sheridan, which is based in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Michigan, and Vermont. So uh, I think that they're, they're trying to get into STM publishing, and also they're aware that Sheridan does have a lot of uh, strong technology and, and workflow advantages that they, I think they're trying to get a hold of. But uh, our understanding is that not, not much is going to change with Sheridan's uh, uh, operations. It's more just adding on to what the CJK group is, is capable of. Sure. And a, a, another acquisition in terms of what you're just talking about, Michael, that I was thinking about was uh, Wiley's purchase of Adapon this year. Um, Adapon's a technology company that enables scholarly societies and publishers to sort of host and market um, content and sort of just generally manage content on the web. And I was really impressed with um, sort of their client list and how many articles they're hosting. I mean, more than 9,000 journals, um, which represents um, about a third of the world's English language wow. uh, scholarly articles exactly on this platform. Um, and so, you know, Wiley is, is a big commercial publisher, but Adapon already has all of these other, you know, um, very prominent publishers uh, on its client roles, including Elsevier, the American Chemical Society, IEEE. So, you know, how are these publishers feeling now about Wiley owning this platform that they all use now? And, you know, Wiley said that there's going to be certain firewalls set up so that that business unit is um, treated very separately yeah. um, because, you know, they understand, obviously, that it could um, feel like a conflict or... I mean, it seems like a very strong possibility of yep. conflict. And I mean, they're going to have to be very clear about how these, this separation plays out because, yeah, I can totally see, you know, publishers, you know, potentially wanting to move away from it if they don't want to, you know, give too much to Wiley. Exactly. And the CEO of Adapon is going to be reporting directly to the CEO of Wiley. Um, and it's sort of they've adopted Wiley's going to be a client of Adapon. And we'll have to see how it shakes out. But it is interesting, like thinking about the motivation behind it um, because Wiley's sort of purporting that um, you know Literatum which is um, the web hosting platform is you know sort of they need that part of Adapon to um, augment their own technology services but I mean there's other you know revenue generating and sort of yeah, profit mine behind this so um, it'll sort of be interesting to see where that goes because that's a lot of data and information that Wiley's going to control. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think we have some other uh, things that we were talking about. 
Um, as far as Clarivet, it looks like Clarivet Analytics uh, acquired Publons this year. Yeah, and it's interesting. So Clarivet um, is uh, owns the former IP portion of Thomson Reuters, so which includes ISI and, and Scholar One. So it's interesting that they already had a, a partnership with Publons, and now they're sort of cementing that partnership by um, purchasing it. So it'll be interesting. Both of them are sort of in the space of finding peer reviewers and helping, you know, it's a service that they can offer. So I think we'll see a lot more synergy with the two of them now that they're owned. Yeah. One of the other um, interesting developments this year, and I think this has kind of been building over the past few years, uh, was publishers trying to build their own peer review uh, management systems. And so specifically, I'm thinking about PLOS, who uh, built Aperta, and Elsevier, who built Evise. And, and so while those have been sort of in development for a while, I think we're really starting to see what they're going to look like as they sort of rolled them out over the past uh, year or so. And I'm really curious to see, A, what happens with them, and, and B, um, I, what I want to know and what I wish I could be inside the rooms where these decisions were made is why are they doing this? I mean, there, as we all know, there are you know several fine options for peer review management systems um, that work well enough, uh, in my opinion. But so why would someone, you know, take on this, to me, a monumental task of, of building uh, their own system? Um, are they trying to, you know, just have more control uh, over what happens? Um, I know PLOS has stated, and I think Elsevier as well, stated the, the, the point there. They want to uh, just make a better experience for researchers as they're submitting and going through the peer review process. Because, I mean, I think we've all, you know, dealt with researchers who are wrestling with Scholar yeah. One or EM or something like that. And, and, and I don't disagree with them in thinking that perhaps there is a better way to do this. I haven't figured it out. I guess if I did, I'd be a millionaire. But um, Just the cost and the time invested, though, to do this, to build something from scratch that already exists in a lot of other forms, is it's a really interesting business decision. So I'm really kind of interested to see what happens with that in 2018 and beyond. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, so many of these systems, existing systems, have been in development for 10, 15 years already. So, so it's kind of hard to compete with that. Um, but maybe they, they, Elsevier and PLOS, believe they can do it better um, or need them to integrate better with their existing uh, other systems and processes. So we'll see uh, what happens because I'm very curious to see how this plays out as well. Hey, everyone. Michael here with a few quick notes. So as we were recording the podcast, PLOS's CEO, Allison Muddit actually released a statement saying that PLOS was halting development of Aperta. So we have some closure on that story as PLOS focuses its efforts elsewhere. Next note, Wiley actually acquired Adipon in October of 2016, not 2017. And finally, we mentioned ISI, but after being sold by Thomson Reuters in 2016, it's now called Clarivate Analytics. All right, back to the show. All right, I've got the next disruption. This is something that I've been thinking about all year, and it's something that I've been seeing happen, you know, on individual case-by-case bases, and now I'm seeing it more and more. But it's this idea of um, 
all of these different standards that had been developed individually now kind of coalescing into one large scholarly publishing ecosystem. So what I'm thinking of are industry standards and services that are now cross-communicating across technology platforms. Uh, an example that I'm thinking of off the top of my head, uh, the product Overleaf, which is a manuscript creation service where you can sort of, you know, authors can go in and write their manuscripts and LaTeX, grab different journal style guides and things, um, reference styles, that kind of thing. And then... Um, Previously, it had just been used to create it, and then you'd have to take that document somewhere else. But now I'm seeing that Overleaf is now being able to be integrated into uh, manuscript submission sites like Editorial Manager, and I think some other ones. Um, another thing that I noticed was um, Ringgold, which is sort of this standard for... Um, eliminating duplicate records of funding bodies and author institutions. Ringgold is now being sort of... Um, dispersed out into these uh, submission platforms as well and onto, um, you know, websites and that sort of thing. Uh, have you guys been seeing this too? Yeah, definitely. And I think ORCID is one. It's sort of like yeah. the standard standard now that yeah. everyone knows yeah. a lot about. Um, and, you know, we saw Alice, Alice Meadows at this year's Peer Review Congress sort of giving an update on how ORCID's um, new functionality in terms of um, collating peer review activity is going, which, you know, that's something I think we're seeing too with these standards is, is that they're not just being, you know, used more, but they're sort of, their uses are being expanded. So in terms of, of the peer review activity, um, you know, it hasn't quite caught on. And it's interesting because we talked a little bit about Publons in the last um, section and Publons is sort of in this competing space with ORCID in terms of capturing peer review activity and, and collating them together. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, some submission systems Systems are partnering with Publons to do that, and some are partnering with Orchid. So in some situations, there's like a little bit of a natural tension there, but mm -hmm. in some situations, they're really complementing each other. So it'll sort of be interesting to see how that relationship unfolds a little bit. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how that plays out because it seems like several players uh, are trying to collect this data, which is going to be very valuable and increasingly valuable as it goes on. And just a, uh, another point to what you were saying, Michelle, about Ringgold. Um, so I didn't realize this until recently, but ORCID's also has put together a working group in 2017 to come up with or, or, or think about how to come up with an organization identifier, which would be the same, you know, ID to apply to researcher affiliations to disambiguate those. But right. Ringgold's kind of in that space already. You know, it's sort of a taxonomy versus ID sort of thing, but it's the same concept. So it'll be interesting um, to see how it coalesces or or how it's differentiated in the in the space. Yeah. I think that now in 2017 we all realize the utility of services like this. Um, they started as disruptors. Now they're not any longer. And now sort of this year and moving forward, it's kind of seeing how all of these different things start communicating with each other uh, mm -hmm. across the board. So I think that's really exciting in publishing, and I think it's going to really help the authors. And I think that for us, you know, working in publishing, it's just been keeping us on our toes for sure. Yeah, we definitely have to keep up. I know um, I've seen a few new things come on recently, uh, some like FundRef. Uh, so it's a cross-ref project. It's collecting and disseminating funding information. Yeah. 
which is uh, becoming increasingly important as these uh, different funders are having mandates related to how the, the work supported by these funds has to be treated. Like these need to be open access or these need to be, you know, given special preference or, or, or certain treatment. Um, so just having a central clearinghouse for all of that information, just having a standard to collect it as opposed to just what an author wrote on a title page or something like that. Um, so, so making it just, you know, more standardized and more portable. And I wonder too, like in, in the industry, we're getting very familiar with these and very interested in, in using them. And I wonder from the author's perspective, what they're thinking, because it's a lot of, you know, new words and companies and bells and whistles to throw at them. And I think that they can really help with their, their research and disseminating their work. But I wonder if it's a little overwhelming from their perspective a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. I bet. I know for FunRef, they're trying to make it easy and just make it like a drop down and then authors to select where the money came from. So I, I know some of these standards are trying to make it as easy as possible because they, they understand uh, just how difficult it can be. So I think it's just going to be hard on us. And then the authors hopefully will have a nice, easy experience. Um, though a potential exception to that might be a Dryad, which is a um, data depository that is sort of becoming the de facto standard place to, to store your data. Mm -hmm. I know I've seen a few uh, journals this year uh, that have started requiring authors to submit to Dryad before they can even have wow. their paper under review. Uh, so that editors or reviewers can take a look at the hard data uh, before making editorial decisions about it. So I, I think that's, um, I don't know, that's kind of going along with the openness and, and, and transparency that we talked about in the last show. Um, I think that's just going to continue as, as more technology like this develops. And then on the production side, I, I know I've been hearing about JATS for a long time, but I feel like it's really become the standard now. Um, so if you don't know what JATS is, it's just uh, a XML tagging for uh, scholarly works, uh, kind of production focused, but it's just a way to uh, organize your metadata. And so at, at this year's CSE, I actually attended uh, JATS and BITS, uh, which is uh, JATS for Books uh, session. Um, where we got to hear from uh, Jeffrey Beck, who uh, was from the NLM and helped develop JATS. So I got to actually hear from the people who developed JATS and, and sort of what they're doing. And so they're just trying to create a tag suite that covers all the different little pieces um, and, and can be standardized across you know, different systems. So I think it'll just make it easier for us production folks to, uh, to deal with things and not have to customize so much uh, metadata. I love how many abbreviations are in our industry, and I just hope that everyone knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Journal article tag yeah. suite. I mean, I knew what it stood for, but... <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I think um, what we're seeing is, like you said, Michelle, a development of a real ecosystem because a lot of these things we have been hearing about for years, but now we're really seeing them come into their own and be integrated uh, into you know one big workflow. So I think it'll just make things yeah. better as we go along. Yeah, it's expanding our scholarly publishing ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the next disruptor we want to talk about is diversity. So diversity isn't a new focus in the industry. It's been around, and particularly speaking, um, so far it's been about gender and race um, in 
uh, scholarly publishing among scholarly publishing professionals. But I think we just keep see seeing this um, topic expand. I mean, it's part of our national conversation yeah. right now on so many levels. But I think it's expanding in terms of a assessment of diversity in the publishing industry, as well as the peer review process itself um, and professional societies. And it's all really driven by this desire for influencers in those areas to really reflect um, the populations that they represent. Um, and what's different and why I think this is a disruptor right now is because it's really reaching this critical mass period where diversity isn't seen as a luxury anymore. It's really about um, being a required measure of success. And that doesn't make it easy to achieve or, or, or tackle, but um, it's becoming um, a must to address as opposed to it would be nice if if we could do that. And sort of where I've seen this come up a lot um, with my own work in journals is in uh, medical and professional societies. Um, there's a lot of conversations happening in societies about increasing diversity um, within provider communities in order to better match the diversity in the patient population. And I mean, as the U.S. population itself as a whole continues to get more diverse, and I mean, across so many spectrums, not just race and, and um uh, gender, right. care providers have to understand how diversity impacts equality in healthcare related to access and quality and outcomes. And as the societies are grappling with this issue, it'll inevitably influence the research and scope of the journals that they own. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that comes back to us in the publishing community. And I think that a lot of them are really hoping that journals can be a pathway to increase understanding and knowledge and dissemination of ideas that can lead to progressive action. I think action is really what makes this a disruption at the moment. It's not just talking the talk. People want to see others walking the walk. Right. Right. And it's, it's not easy, but there are some, some real interesting ways that you can take action on this. Um, I, I got to attend an SSP regional event uh, in Durham this year, and they were talking, they were giving great advice about things you can do to increase diversity that's not just like affirmative action. It's, it's well, what they were talking about was widening your hiring pools by basically getting your job posting in front of more people. And so um, one of the people uh, at, at the talk was from Oxford University Press, and, and they mentioned you know reaching out to LGBTQ uh, uh, communities, African American, Latin American communities, and, and just you know trying to show uh, these underrepresented groups that that publishing is an option. Um, they also you know, participated in career fairs at historically black colleges and universities, and, and just um, trying to correct the historical barriers. Uh, that there have been. Um, and, and so I, I thought this was like a great way to, you know, increase your hiring pool and, and, and honestly a great thing to do because you're getting more people, you're seeing a more diverse population. And so you're going to find better people uh, overall. So in addition to getting the uh, job ad in front of uh, more eyes, um, another piece of advice that they gave was to broaden your hiring panel. So including people, you know, underrepresented uh, groups in the hiring decision. Um, so you're, you're not going to be as, or, so you're going to cover your blind spots, basically, I, th I think is the goal. Um, and then once you have people hired, uh, they encourage you to uh, create, you know, peer support groups. So uh, that historically underrepresented people uh, can feel more comfortable in the places where they work. And, and also building mentorship programs. I mean, this is just a great thing for any business to do totally. at any in any 
uh, in any uh, situation. But I think um, just taking some of these actionable steps, uh, I think, can really help uh, a company like ours or, or anybody in, in the publishing industry. So I know after, right after I saw this session, I went immediately to Michelle's office. I was like, Michelle, I just heard all this stuff. I got to talk to you about all this. So I, I definitely got really excited about it. Yeah, it's totally relevant. I mean, when you mentioned hiring panels, that made me think of something that I've been seeing a lot this year, um, which is a Twitter hashtag um, at all of the conferences that I've been going to or conferences that I haven't gone to, but I've been sort of following along with on Twitter, the all-female panel hashtag and the more sarcastic all-male panel hashtag. <laughs> um, people are talking about this. They're bringing it to the forefront even when it seems like, you know, people might not want to. Um, and so the Twitter community at least is going to keep talking about it. Um, I, uh, read this article last week on the Scholarly Kitchen blog that was about what SSP, uh, Society for Scholarly Publishing, is doing right now to try to increase the diversity, uh, within their organization. And one of the things that they said that they were doing is when they put out a call for speakers, because what they do is they accept, uh, proposals for their annual conference they say that they would rather have a panel of diverse opinions, um, not necessarily, you know, looking for to meet any sort of quota or anything like that, but they'd rather have a panel of people discussing a topic than just one person up there. Yeah, and I think that's so important in, in thinking about why we want diversity. It's really about diversity of opinions and ideas because the more ideas that are on the table and we can sift through and try out, you know, the better outcomes we're going to have and better know how to what directions to take in publishing. Another thing when we talk about diversity that it really makes me think about is the ratio of males to females in publishing. Um, I've been reading lately and, you know, within the la over the last 10 years or so, um, just about how many women are in publishing. It's about 66% female, the rest male. But um, the percentage of women that are in leadership roles or executive roles is, is not as high as the, their, you know, sort of commensurate uh, representation. And I just think it's kind of funny that us three sitting here today, two females and a male kind of represent that panel um, pretty well. So yeah, totally. And, and just to piggyback off of that in terms of, you know, we're really thinking about this as a community in the publishing industry. And I think a lot of societies and, and publishers and who are self-published especially are thinking about this too in terms of, um, you know, how does the percentage of, you know, gender percentage in their societies reflect their author pool um, and their reviewer pool. Um, again, at the Peer Review Congress, so many great sessions um, this year. Yeah. So glad we got to go to that. But um, the American Geophysical Union presented the findings of a study they did comparing gender distribution to their society and author pool and reviewer and found that women were underrepresented in their authorship and reviewer pools. Um, and so, you know, what do we do to tackle that? as well in, in the actual scientific societies? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I <laughs> wish I had an answer because, yeah, no, that, that was a great talk and, and, yeah, interesting data they presented. Okay. So the next disruptor that I'd like to talk about 
is just this sort of changing relationship with contract workers and freelancers that I've been noticing. So within my role as the director of operations here at j and I am sort of recruiting and hiring people. I'm working on contracts that we have with our clients and kind of seeing what their needs are and what we can accommodate here at j and um, and one of the things that I have to keep in mind and that I've learned a lot about working with our uh, HR people here at J&J is from a legal perspective, there's been this crackdown on compliance by the IRS. Basically, right now, the government is really wary about independent contractors versus employees. Basically, the government's looking to make sure that workers aren't being misclassified by employers. So basically, this kind of all circles around healthcare. Uh, if you are an employee and you work over 30 hours a week, I think in most states, at least I know here in North Carolina, you need to be benefits eligible. It's, it's a legal requirement. Um, and so this kind of falls under this Department of Labor Fair Standards Act. Um, and so... It's kind of interesting because where there had been this huge pool of freelancers previously, we're seeing some clients and some, you know, pre-existing clients and clients that are coming to us saying, we don't really want to be having freelancers as much anymore. We'd like to bring this work to you or to, you know, can you bet on this type of situation? But it's kind of interesting because it's juxtaposed with the gig economy, which is also really huge right now. I was um, at a seminar recently about millennials in the workplace, and it was just kind of talking about how millennials are challenging this traditional idea of like a linear career ladder and, you know, sort of moving up in the business and staying somewhere for a long time. Um, And instead, millennials are focused on collecting experiences, working multiple jobs, and not really staying uh, at many of them very long. And so kind of seeing these two forces butt heads this year has been interesting, and I'm I'm super interested to see how it shakes out. Yeah, it's it's a big change, I think, for publishing because there was so much and and continues to be so much uh, involvement by freelancers. So, you know, you've got your copy editors, you've got your freelance managing editors, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so I think that is why we're seeing a lot of action on our end as, as a vendor uh, since um, there was so much of this and now it's just getting harder and more difficult to comply uh, with uh, federal and state standards uh, uh, for you know, freelance work. So I know that you know, working with vendors, I, I mean, as a, uh, <laughs> as a vendor, I'm a little biased, but I, I, I would prefer to do it. I mean, I, I, we have vendors at J&J, uh, so, you know, we'll offshore typesetting and things like that. And so I know uh, I have some contacts for some freelance typesetters as well. But, you know, with a freelancer, you're just getting one person. And, and it's, you know, even if they do a great job, they can only do so much in a day. But, you know, if you work with a vendor, they have staff and teams and things like that. So, so I think you can get more done. And also you don't have to worry about running into legal trouble uh, quite as often uh, when you're working with a vendor. Yeah, and I think publishers, too, are... are- within all of this, going to be thinking about their bottom line. And I think because of that, it's really going to drive them to be flexible. I think what we're going to see them doing is sort of a mixed bag of working with vendors versus pulling some stuff in-house, even on the same project or the same journal, or maybe having two vendors work on the same thing. So I think they're really going to be thinking really strategically about which vendor works on what or what they do themselves again. um, Right. And just onshore versus offshore. And I think it's going to 
really be like exactly. trying a lot of different things and seeing what sticks. Exactly. Yeah, and I think getting back to our uh, first point that we were talking about earlier, I think that's why we're seeing so much action in the you know acquisitions and partnerships space is that everybody's trying to figure out a new way to do it because um, things have been disrupted. Yeah. And, and now everybody's <laughs> trying to pick up the pieces and figure out how to do it uh, tomorrow. And now the final disruption uh, that we saw in 2017, um, and this is uh, things happening outside of the traditional publishing model. So outside of the publisher to a library to a researcher model. Um, so I think we, we took a look at things like preprints and ResearchGate, and I took a, a special look at SciHub. Um, so SciHub, uh, for those who don't know, it is a place where... Um, a grad student uh, from Kazakhstan named Alexandra Elbakian, hope I got that name right, um, created uh, basically a database for people to have access to uh, scholarly works that are typically behind a paywall. Now, this uh, the courts have basically ruled this is not legal. This definitely breaks copyright. Um, and uh, Science Magazine has characterized SciHub as an awe-inspiring act of altruism or a massive criminal enterprise, depending on who you ask. So uh, opinions are definitely diverse and split on uh, what SciHub means for everyone. Um, There's definitely the idea of it's information, it's, you know, science, it's a human right to have access to science. But then you have all these publishers who own the copyrights and say... Right. And I mean, it came about because so many articles are behind paywalls and so many institutions, you know, maybe don't have access or haven't paid for access to some of the um, needed research things so that, you know, maybe people in developing countries can have access to um, articles. But I know that we've also seen reports that it's not necessarily just people in developing uh, countries that are using SciHub. It's people in the United States that come from, you know, just your average university that has access, institutional subscriptions to journals. Mm -hmm. Or they have access to most, but not all. So they'll use SciHub to fill in the gaps. Or it's just convenience. Maybe it's easier to use SciHub search than your library search. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you Um, don't want to go on campus. You want to stay at your (laughs) apartment. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and sort of the less militant cousin to that is ResearchGate, which is, you know, supposed to be the social media platform for researchers to to share research publications and sort of facilitate discussion amongst them and collaboration. Um, But, you know, in the same, you know, breath that publishers are concerned about SciHub, they're concerned about ResearchGate, too, because of copyright infringement, Um, you know, a lot of publishers have, have sunk a lot of money into the publication process and, and dissemination of, of scholarly work, um, and they uh, want people to be respecting the, the copyright law. So there are some publishers um, that have created this Coalition for Responsible Sharing, which is sort of the publisher response to ResearchGate, and they're basically saying that ResearchGate is sort of like a parasite on scholarly works because they're making money off of copyrighted material that doesn't belong to them, and they're not contributing anything. They're not amplifying it or enhancing it in any way. They're sort of just providing a discussion tool. Um, So I know a lot of publishers were issuing takedown notices to ResearchGate. um, And as well, uh, ResearchGate has done complied with some of that, but a a couple of um, publishers are seeking um, answers in in the court system for what is ResearchGate's responsibility in terms of um, adhering and complying to copyright law. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, because for SciHub, there's been some court rulings where um, the courts have basically ordered uh, internet service providers and web hosts, search engines to 
block uh, Sci-Hub. So that one has come down, and, and the courts have said, like, no, we can't have this. Of course, it's the Internet, so people are going to find ways around it. Right. But but that, that that is where the courts stand, and, and both um, – Elsevier and uh, the American Chemical Society mm-hmm. uh, have both uh, filed and uh, won uh, legal action against Sci-Hub, though I don't know how they're going to collect on that, yeah. but we'll see how that plays out. And sort of something you know that's interesting between both of these is sort of this mentality that's behind it in terms of individuals who resent the control that these commercial publishers have over research or content. And so you know they make the argument um, that, you know, uh, scholarly scientific information should be free for the benefit of all, um, but they sort of forget about the standardized quality control peer review process that publishers are really upholding, and it's really not a black and white issue between you know researcher good, corporate publisher greedy and bad, right. which is sort of how it's being simplified in some areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I think that that's where preprints maybe kind of come into play as well because preprints have you know been proven to be extremely legitimate, you know. Um, there's only a couple of publishers out there that are saying we don't really want to consider any preprints, but all of the major publishers, you know, Elsevier, Cell Press, Science, um, they're all saying, yes, we will accept a preprint submission. Um, I'm seeing, you know, the New England Journal of Men- uh, Medicine has sort of discouraged it, as well as uh, Journal of Clinical Investigation. But um, I think that preprints are kind of existing in this space that has been created because authors are wanting to just kind of get their research out. They're maybe not wanting to wait uh, months and months or a year to um, see the final results of if their paper's been accepted or declined, or maybe there's some sort of emerging research that they'd like to sort of get out, get comments on, have people take a look at. Maybe they're not as concerned about getting a traditional publishing um, manuscript out of it. Mm -hmm. Right, and that that makes a lot of sense why publishers... um, would be okay with that. Because I, I think, um, like you were saying, Brittany, the uh, publishers are adding a lot of this quality control. They're, you know, making it look nice. You know, that's what I do all day. And so while I am definitely sympathetic to people who say, well, authors, they're not getting paid, so why should publishers be making all this money? It's like, well, publishers do work too. Like, yep. that's what we do here. <laughs> we do this all day long. And, and so while I'm sympathetic to the authors, I like having a job and I think what we do adds value to, to exactly. the author's work. So I'm definitely, you know, kind of mm-hmm. b- playing both sides on this one. I think I can see both sides and I'm really curious to see how this sort of plays out long term because, um, I mean, you know, with preprints coming out, um, and, and most, most people are okay with that. You know? I mean, they've been around for a super long time. Mm-hmm. I think only more in recent years have some fields that had been previously sort of hesitant to mm-hmm. do preprints, like in the biological sciences, are now doing them also. I think a lot of it has to do with authors are able to establish, you know, the precedent that, you know, they found whatever this was first and uh, they're not going to get scooped and that kind of thing. So that's mm-hmm. kind of another space for preprints as well. And I think it'll be interesting too, like this is a disruptor now, but I think over time this is just going to get another thing to get integrated into the publication process. I mean, I think there are already submission systems that are thinking about how to integrate and create a workflow from preprint to peer review. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. what happens to the DOIs and, you know, what happens to the comments that had been posted on the preprint publication and should those be taken into consideration when a manuscript's submitted to a regular journal and, right, yeah. 
Yeah, it seems like a lot of publishers, like you said, Michelle, are fine with preprints. They ask, you know, authors point to disclose the, it. Yeah, you exactly. Know, point to the published version as well on their preprint site. But yep. for the most part, yeah, publishers are okay with it. Um, I'm really curious to see how all of these things, because you know, I'm sensing a trend where people want to get this information out faster, or they want to, you know, get it faster, and and with fewer barriers in between. And you know, you see library budgets struggling to keep up with you know costs going up, and just the you know massive number of articles and journals that are coming out. You know, how are libraries going to afford this? How is anybody going to? Is the business model for uh, scholarly publishers going to have to change? Are they going to have to find a different way? I mean, is this the the Napster moment for scholarly right. publishing? <laughs> right. are, are we going to have you know scholarly iTunes and Spotify? I don't know. I'm really curious to see what happens in the next ten years. All right. Well, 2017 has definitely been a very interesting year uh, in scholarly publishing and beyond. But uh, I think I think we're really curious to see how some of these things play out because it's it's been disruptive and and we'll I think I feel I feel like we'll be at the forefront of it um, in dealing with these things since we are so in the center uh, of so many of these stories that we're talking about. Um, so. I just want to thank you, Michelle and Brittany, for uh, being on here. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was fun. Yeah, good to chat with you. Yeah, no, uh, I love hearing you guys' perspective because y'all both know so much and you're involved in so much in scholarly publishing. Um, so I just want to uh, wish everyone a happy holiday and uh, encourage you all to follow us on Twitter at JJ Editorial. Uh, check us out on Facebook. If you haven't already, check out our newly designed website. Uh, that was my big project this year. Uh, which was uh, fixing our website, making it look pretty. And, um, yeah, we hope to see you all uh, at the industry conferences uh, in the coming year. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. All right. Happy holidays.